People of God in Christ, last week we began with the theme of Christian confidence. Could you hear that again in the, in the verses we, we just read? And I would ask, are you a confident Christian? Personally, I'm working on it uh, and hoping to help all of us by God's word in the same. We start this way because, as I mentioned, to some degree that theme, that teaching of God's word continues this morning. The, the firm basis of our confidence and the call of God himself for us to be confident is found in Psalm 18 by these words from King David, By you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. We need these courageous words in our own day. We need, as Christians, to be confident. And we have every reason to be Confident, if our confidence is founded upon, if it arises from our covenant relationship with God in Jesus Christ. In other words, if we really do stand upon a covenant relationship with God, if we have his gospel promises, if Christ is our... The question is whether we will. It's the question of faith. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? then you can be courageous in the Christian life. And we must be confident as we live, even as we take up our cross daily to follow our Lord Jesus. Confidence, and specifically Christian confidence, is worth a sermon and even two or more. We live in a frightful day. And we are rather spoiled, aren't we? Uh, because there are others of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who, when they hear us say it, that we live in a frightful day, they have to force back a smile. They are tempted to laugh at us a bit, and maybe even a lot. In America, we know very little of what Jesus promised, that those who would follow him must expect persecution. But the waters are rising for us. Things are getting dicey, as we say. Will we keep our jobs or will we lose them? Will our neighbors continue to tolerate us as believers in Jesus Christ and adherents of God's word? What will the world do with us? On one hand, the question is, what will we do with the world? But the reality of Satan's kingdom is real. And the question is becoming increasingly poignant. What will the world do with us? The point is not to stir suspicion, discouragement, and fear. Quite the opposite. The point is to stir faith in Christ and courage by faith and confidence in our daily lives. As we said last time, the point must come where we are tired of being tired and 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 and, and that we would refuse any longer to live in fear. We need courage, and we need confidence, and God would give us these. But we must listen, and oh, that we would listen and believe. Faith requires that we humble ourselves and, and quit trying to be self-made champions or even self-made survivors. We must take God at his word. We must, 
We must face the opposition, the opposition with a smile, knowing that as believers in Jesus Christ, if God is for us, and you can finish it, who can be against us? But it will require that we know who our God is. It will require that we are trusting Him, prayerfully trusting, daily relying by the confession of our faith on the one true God in whom we trust. And so it will require that we are regularly praising Him, ascribing unto Him His existence and His character. This, this, this is how we will be confident through our praise of God, through our ascribing unto Him. This is how we, we will be confident in the very short lives that we live in this very temporary world. Therefore, the first point this morning is only God is God. This is a very basic point. This is, this is Kindergarten 101. A very basic point, but we need to hear it and believe it. Verse 31 of Psalm 18 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The psalmist King David is once again founding his confidence in God, who is his Lord. And you and I need to do the same thing. Our, the world, our, our culture, uh, would have us think that, uh, that we get to create our own God uh, that God is whatever we want it to be. Within the Hindu religion, there are thousands of, of gods, but, but the thousands of gods of Hinduism are nothing compared to American secularism. American secularism says there are millions of gods. Because there is, so it is thought, a god for every person, because every person is considered free to decide for themselves and to create by their own individual imagination who and what God is to them. But the thing that is absolutely basic to biblical Christianity is that there is but one true God. Have you ever heard the expression, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God himself almost begs his people to know it, to remember that he only is God. He says in Isaiah 46, verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I, I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Does God have an ego problem? Only wanting to make sure he gets acknowledged as God instead of any other? No, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Open wide your mouths and I will fill it, says the psalmist. In Psalm 81, God is filled with blessing, we might say, and he's ready to pour it out. Yes, he is dedicated to his own glory, but his glory comes by the blessing he bestows upon his people 
so that his people will be brought to say, as King David said, who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? We live in a day of, uh, of what they call fake news. You can turn on the television, but woe to you uh, if you believe whatever you are told uh, automatically in the news. But we ought to laugh at the, at the term fake news because there's nothing new about fake news. It just used to be called propaganda. And everybody understood what that meant. But for some reason, I maybe haven't quite figured it out, for some reason our culture, whether from the right or from the, the left, our culture can't bring itself to use the word propaganda. Instead, it's this new thing. We, we always has to be something new, right? But it isn't new at all. Everyone wants this new thing to be called fake news, but what it is is propaganda. I think it's because no one really wants to admit that we are at war. Even within our own nation, propaganda is a weapon of warfare. Just as we make room, so to speak, for violence when it comes to war, so we make room for deception in order to win a war. But even the devil doesn't want us to think that we are at war. So it has to be fake news rather than propaganda. So be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you take as your source of truth. And for your first source of truth, let it be the Word of God. And let this be your first portion of truth from God's Word that the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. For as David puts it in Psalm 18, For who is God but Yahweh? It's the name that God took to Himself as He met with Moses through the burning bush in Exodus 3. You are sending me, O God, said Moses, but a messenger needs to know who he is working for. For whom does he deliver the message? It was a legitimate question that Moses asked, Who shall I say sent me? And and God answered, Tell Pharaoh that I am has sent me to you. It's the covenant name of God. It's It's the name that designates the one true God because it's the one true God who is so gracious and so kind the one true God who is love itself, the one true God who does not deal with his people according to their sins, nor does he repay them after their iniquities. And so it is that the psalmist begins to ascribe unto the Lord the very things that reveal him, the things that determine that he is God and there is none other. And so the second point is blamelessness ascribed to God. And what of this word ascribe, as we use the word here, blamelessness ascribed to God? The word ascribe is another word for praising God. To praise God is is not just to say, I praise you, O God. 
If that's all we say in our effort to praise God, why would God not say, okay, go ahead and do it? Picture the divine fingers of God tapping, drumming, waiting. Is there anything else you have to say? Where is my true praise beyond you saying that you praise me? To praise God is to ascribe unto God the glory due His name. Which is to say to record in public, to to record in public what God has done, and so by what He has done, what He has revealed about Himself. Can we see this? We must see it. We must we must break from the modern evangelical error that sinners have the capacity to say, "I praise you, God. We praise you, God." We glorify you, we exalt you, we magnify you as if simply saying so makes it so. Instead, the Psalms will teach us that to praise God is to ascribe unto the Lord what He has done, to write it down, to declare it, to record it, to make it known to all who will hear the saving work that He has done. The way of the old tent meeting was uh, for the preacher to say, can I get a witness? The question was the call for someone to stand up and say, I was in trouble. My marriage was on the rocks. But now my wife and I are doing better. Another person would say, uh, I was short of money. I I couldn't pay my mortgage. Uh, The bank was ready to foreclose, but God blessed me and he provided for what I needed. Another person stands up and says, I had cancer. The doctor told me I shouldn't expect to live, but, but God healed me. And here I am today. Praise be to God. So the question is, how did we get from God healed me, praise be to God, to just praise be to God? It really is a perplexing thing that people have come to think that their saying praise be to God actually gives any real praise to God. You have to have a pretty high view of yourself if you think that your saying praise the Lord, which is really just a call to praise the Lord, but how that does bring any real praise to God. Instead, to praise God is to ascribe unto the Lord what He has done. In other words, this is what He has done for me. You don't know it because you weren't there, but I was there. So let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what God did for me. This is how God is praised. This is how God is exalted and glorified and and magnified. Remember that in His being, in, in, in heaven before the angels, God doesn't need to be exalted, glorified, or magnified. So choose, choose your favorite synonym for praising God, but you are not doing it until you ascribe unto the Lord what He has done. And so what He has revealed of Himself to sinners on earth by what He has done. Someone might say, well, the word ascribed doesn't even appear in this Psalm Psalm 18. And that is true. 
But that's what the psalmist is doing. He is, he is ascribing unto God what God has done for him. And the first thing that the psalmist ascribes unto God is his own, the psalmist's own, the psalmist's own blamelessness. We dealt with this previously, answering the question that if salvation is by grace, why does the psalmist claim that the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. The answer uh, is that the psalmist was writing out of the immediate experience of being wrongly accused, of being attacked by his enemies, not because God was judging him for something he had done wrong. Instead, the psalmist was being wrongly accused and attacked exactly because he was acting and behaving and living righteously before God. And yet now, the psalmist makes it clear that even his blamelessness in this situation and upon this occasion in his life, even this is owed to God. In other words, the psalmist ascribes unto the Lord his blamelessness. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. Here's an aspect of the, of the Christian faith that we need to make clear. We, we might be tempted to hide it. We might be tempted to think, well, that's not going to go over well. That's not going to sell within the marketplace of modern spirituality, but, but the truth is this. According to God's word, when you sin, it's your fault. You did it. It wasn't God's fault that you sinned. Even more, it wasn't your parents' fault or your boss's fault or anyone else's fault. You sinned. You did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and you deserve to be cast into hell because of your sin. But when we do good, we are called to ascribe unto the Lord our own blamelessness. That's hard. But that's what God's Word teaches. And just to clarify, again, when when God's Word speaks of blamelessness, God is not speaking of being perfectly sinless. This is why one of the qualifications for being an elder in the church is that a man be blameless. The point is not sinless, because if that were the case, no one would qualify, myself included. Only Christ, the chief shepherd, is sinless, but he calls for the church to find men who are blameless, to serve as under-shepherds. To be blameless means that, that no one has any dirt on them. In other words, to be blameless is to be living above reproach, to be living in such a way that, that, that no charge is due to be brought upon a man for some ongoing public sin in his life. And that's what David claimed for himself. I, I'm, I'm sure you've been there before. You, you have done things right. You're standing up for truth. You, you are not censorable uh, before any board of authority, whether the church or the state or otherwise. 
And if that's the case, there, there's nothing wrong and there, there's everything right about claiming your own blamelessness before God in some specific situation in your life in which you are being attacked because of your blamelessness. But if that's the case, then it's the case only by the sanctifying grace of God in your life that you are indeed blameless. Do we think we're better than the next person who isn't blameless? It requires that old saying, but by the grace of God go I. If it wasn't for the grace of God in my life, I would be the the dealer. I would be the prostitute. I would be the thief or even the Highland Park shooter. Apart from the grace of God, woe is me left to myself, except that God has spared me the worst exhibition of my own sinful nature. But it's one thing to ascribe unto the Lord your blamelessness. It's quite another thing to trust in Christ for your salvation. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector makes this clear. In Luke 18, consider, consider the prayer of the Pharisee. Uh, he said to God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Have you ever considered that the prayer of the Pharisee was, on one hand, a good prayer? His prayer was basically to say, but by the grace of God, Go I. And what was wrong with that prayer? Was was he not ascribing unto God his own blamelessness? Lord, I thank you. I I give you the credit. I ascribe unto you the, the reality of my life, that I am not like worse sinners around me. The problem was that he was confusing what we might say common grace with saving grace. He was figuring on being saved only because he was blameless and not because he was truly righteous. To be truly righteous requires first that we confess our sin and look in faith for the mercy of God, which is what the tax collector sought from God. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner tax collector wasn't blameless. He had plenty of people pointing the finger at him, and for good reason. But that actually helped him to see that neither was he righteous, and that he therefore needed to cry out for the mercy of God. So in the end, it wasn't about the degree of sin in either man's life. Instead, it's always the matter of whether the sinner the Pharisee, the tax collector, or you, whether each is prepared to cry out for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Next, the psalmist is willing to ascribe unto the Lord his ability. And this we heard already last time when the psalmist said to God, By you I can run against a troop. 
and by my God I can leap over a wall. We took from these words last time the confidence that we ourselves need to claim. Instead of living defeated lives, we need to claim the confidence that is ours by faith, by trusting in Christ. But now the same idea continues when the psalmist writes, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Here we are in the Midwest, in the land of deer. And, uh, and so the image shouldn't be lost on us if we're paying attention. If you've, uh, if you've seen deer running toward a fence wondering, what is she going to do uh, running headlong at that fence? And I say she because there are far more does than bucks. What will she do as she approaches the fence on, on the side of the road? And then what does she do? She leaps maybe even 12 feet into the air. Wow, I... I didn't even know a deer could do that, we might think. But that's the image for us. Maybe there are things that you didn't know you could do. And that's the credit, which is to say, that must be ascribed to God, who makes our feet like the deer and sets us secure on the heights. This is not to give us some kind of false confidence or some kind of foolish confidence. If, if you're not very good at language studies, you're probably not called by God into ministry because to prepare for ministry, you're going to have to study Greek and Hebrew. Uh, if you're not very good at science, uh, if you can't stand the sight of blood, you're probably not going to make it in medical school. There are all kinds of indicators of God's calling in your life. But when it comes to facing the challenges and the burdens, which are many, and the, and the struggles, which are not few, and the, and the challenges that God places before us every day, we need to see these things as walls to leap, as fences to be cleared, as challenges that must be overcome. But with God as our God, with Christ as our Lord, the things that must be overcome are the things that will be overcome if we have faith, which is to say we will overcome, we will have the ability, even as we say, I can't do it, but God can. He can part the Red Sea, and He can do the same for me. He can heal the sick. And his care for me will be just as quick as he cares it to be. I'm not guaranteed that I will never die. But even if I do die, yet shall I live. I can do all things. I can even die with confidence through Christ who gives me strength. Perhaps the challenge of the Christian life is coming to terms with what it means that you are saved, that God is your God with Christ as your Savior. But what a great comfort that is if if we come to understand it, that that the limit on our comfort is, is not any limit within God's care. The limit on our comfort is the limit of our faith the weakness of our faith to comprehend and believe what God has given us in Christ. 
we just don't know what we have. All too often, we just don't realize how rich we are. We just don't believe as fully as we should believe. And that brings us to the next point, the next point that the psalmist ascribes, the next thing that the psalmist ascribes unto the Lord. In verse 35, he writes, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. There's so much here. Salvation ascribed to God. Everybody wants salvation, at least in one form or another. And yet there are fewer who will find it because they are looking for it by their own doing because that's how their pride would have it. But here is a confession of saving faith beyond all false reliance. First, you have given me. Those are important words. You have given me. Salvation is the gift of God. God does not help those who help themselves. That's a distortion, it's even a lie, and it's found nowhere in Scripture that God helps those who help themselves. Instead, God helps those who need to understand that they cannot help themselves. And God helps those who cannot help themselves by first showing them that they cannot help themselves. This is the ministry of the law of God, to bury us in sin. Without apology, God would bury us in sin. Not because we're not already buried, but by the law of God to show us that we are buried, that we are lost, that we are blind, that we are ignorant, we are devoted to the devil. Don't mean to hurt your feelings, but that's the teaching of God's word, that, that when God saves, he saves to the uttermost. But, 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 but consider the logic that... that if, if God saves to the uttermost, then it must start with sinners who are lost to the uttermost. God says, I will not share my glory with another. So if God is to receive all the glory, then our salvation will come out of the squalor and the poverty of sin. We will be saved out of the full depths of sin. We, we will be saved not as we are helped, not as we are assisted, not as we are healed, but as we are resurrected from death in sin. You have given me, writes the psalmist, the shield of your salvation. And that shield is Christ. The ESV doesn't capitalize the word shield here, and that's fine. It doesn't have to capitalize the word shield in order for us to to see that this is a reference to Christ because Christ indeed is our shield. There, uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment left to fall, no punishment for sin remaining to be suffered. And why? Because by faith we are in Christ Jesus. We are in his kingdom of blessing and provision. We are under his care. For the believer in Christ, if if God were to punish him or her for sin, it would require that God become the devil. Do we understand this? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has suffered and died in our place. 
Therefore, he is our shield. The devil cannot accuse us. Hell cannot claim us. We might be called to suffer through this life. We will be called to suffer in this life. We might be tortured. We can obviously be killed. But we cannot die. Because in the end, nothing can harm us when Christ is our shield. But the image of Christ becomes all the more clear when it says, Your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. Where is Christ our Savior now? He is at the right hand of the Father, and even from all eternity, Christ has been the right hand of the Father. And isn't this a a strange thing for the psalmist to, to write, Your gentleness made me great? There are likely many Jewish teachers, scholars, who have wondered throughout the centuries uh, um, what this could mean. Your gentleness made me great. But what did Jesus say? In Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls. Your gentleness, O oh God, has made me great. And so, victory ascribed to God. And this very briefly. We don't have time to go into detail, but the rest of our text describes, ascribes unto God the victory that's, that the psalmist received from the Lord. You equipped me. You made my enemies sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And so I destroyed them. I beat them as fine as dust. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Can we hear it? The psalmist is claiming victory. But it's the victory that he is ascribing unto the Lord. This is what faith is. Claiming what is ours, to be sure. Claiming what is ours, even as we ascribe it unto the Lord. This is the source of our confidence. Praising God, ascribing unto Him what He has done, so that we remember His greatness. So that we remember His love. So that we remember His power and His protection and His care. He does not spare us troubles and struggles. But he uses our trouble and our struggles to humble us, also to reveal himself and to give us confidence. Confidence in the face of every challenge. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, for teaching us so clearly in your word who you are, what you have done for us, so that we can live with confidence. We confess that we too often succumb to discouragement, 
And uh, we even adopt perhaps a, a false humility that says, I can't, it won't happen, it will never be. But, oh God, we can trust you. And we can have confidence if we will listen and if we will believe. And so, may we indeed ascribe unto you every blessing, every deliverance, every help that you've ever given us, may we ascribe it unto you. But above all, may we ascribe unto you the great work that you have done that we might be your people and that we might have the hope of eternal life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.